It's Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and as who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those of you that, um, that I have not yet met, my name is Steve Curry, and I am one of the pastors at Frontline Church in, um, in the central Oklahoma City area. It's, um, it's really good to be with you again this morning. It's really a privilege and an honor for me um, to come here and for us all to be together um, during this, this difficult and painful time. Um, I've been comforted a lot the last few days by the Psalms of David. And I think that maybe part of the reason is because David was so real with God. See, he wasn't telling God, um, you know, uh, what he thought God wanted to hear. But he was just honest with where he was in his heart. And, and so David could go from one psalm where he would say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, to writing just a little while later, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, that was something that Jesus quoted on the cross. But David said it first. See, he was, he was really honest with the Lord. But David asked a lot of questions that didn't get answered right away. He asked a lot of questions in the Psalms. Lord, where are you? How long, O oh Lord? Just a lot of things that, that you didn't see get answered really quickly. But nearly all of his Psalms ended with an expression of hope. See, he came to the place of, of hopefulness. And, and even when he's in Psalm 42, when he's, he's talking to his own soul, and he's saying, Hope in God. Again, while I praise his name, see? His, he had hope that he would see God's goodness, not only in eternity, but also in the land of the living. See, he was hoping that God would show up in his life. So that's our hope this morning. That, that's our, our strong desire, is that we would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. So let's go to him now with that hope and, um, and go to him in prayer. Well, Father, we, we come to you this morning, Lord, with, with far more questions um, than we have answers. We come to you with our, with our sorrow and, and with our grief. Lord, we ask that you would meet with us here this morning. Let this be the real us sharing life with the real you, Lord. Let us experience your presence and be comforted by your presence. 
Lord, your, your word truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, this morning we, we need that light. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our hearts that we can hear and we can see you as we look into your word together. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, when I, um, when I was considering um, where we should go this morning in the scripture, I realized that there were, were probably a hundred different ways that we could go. But in the end, it seemed good to pick up where you guys have been for the last little while in the book of Genesis. So you've you finished chapter 2, you were getting ready to start chapter 3, and chapter 3 is hands down the darkest chapter in the Bible. See, chapter 3 is, is where mankind goes off the rails. Adam and Eve turned in rebellion against God, and everything, everything collapsed into a heap on the ground. See, impossibly broken. But there is a ray of hope, a, a ray of light that is so bright in chapter 3 that it's enough to fix all the brokenness of mankind. So we'll look at that in a minute. But first I'd like to go back to those earlier two chapters and just say a couple of more things that I, I think will be helpful to us this morning. So um, the first is the unbounded joy that was experienced in the garden. Okay, that, The unbounded joy that, that that first man and that first woman experienced in the, in the garden. So when we think about the Garden of Eden, we're considering a place that none of us has ever seen, none of us have ever been there. And I think there's a temptation for us to see the garden in kind of a two-dimensional way. So there's a naked man and a naked woman. They're both discreetly covered by bushes and, and trees. And they're, they're kind of wandering around this park-like area, kind of aimlessly. There's not really anything to do. It's just this beautiful place. Um, the Genesis account doesn't give us a lot of information about their day-to-day -day activities. But there are a few clues. And there are also a few clues from other places in Scripture. Um, for instance, in Genesis 1, uh, you read a few weeks ago, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light over the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So astronomers tell us that with our best telescopes today, we're able to see about 7 times uh, 10 to the 64th power number of stars. So that's a 7 with 64 zeros after it. That's more stars than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. Okay, Genesis simply tells us God made the stars. But Job 38 gives us a little more detail about that day. As Job was standing literally in the face of a tornado, God speaks to him out of that tornado, and he says this, Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? 
Well, see, that's a lot more detail about what was happening on that fourth day of creation. What would it have been like to hear seven times 10 to the 64th power number of stars all singing for joy and all the angels of God rejoicing? See, um, if you're having a problem with singing stars this morning, you're probably also having a problem with talking snakes. And we just read about that too. Okay? But both of them were real, and both of them were a part of what happened there. See, they're a part of that story. On the fourth day, humanity wasn't even on the scene yet, and yet creation was full of joy. Okay? It was full of the joy of God. God began the sixth day by making all the animals, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So when I was a boy, we had a weekly TV program that, um, that some of you are old enough to remember. It was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Anybody remember Mutual of Omaha? Yeah, see, it's there. Well, that thing morphed into something today called Animal Planet. So you can actually watch Animal Planet 24-7 if you want to. But I remember watching it, and over and over again, I saw this same scenario played out. So there's a herd of gazelle, and they're all peacefully um, eating on the savanna. And there's a baby gazelle, and it's, it's nursing from its mom. And then all of a sudden, bam, a lion comes from out of nowhere. And where there had been a baby gazelle, now there's just blood and hair and bones. Okay? Do you know that in the, in the garden, animals didn't devour one another? Genesis 1.30 tells us that the animals were all eating plants. So part of what it means when God created the animals and then said it is good was that everything was in harmony. He was saying everything here is in harmony. Predator and prey was a completely foreign concept um, there's another program on called Unlikely Animal Friends that uh, it shows these guys. Do we have? Yeah. So we've got these guys. And um, uh, the, the thing that strikes us about these animals is that by all rights, one of them should be running and the other one should be chasing the first one trying to have him for lunch. Okay. Um, so from our current perspective, there's something broken about these animals. Um, something's wrong with them. But what they're actually doing is they're acting like their ancestors did in the garden. They're, they're in harmony with one another. Well, God finishes out the sixth day by making the first man and the first woman. Listen to these verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Well, there's a lot that we could say about, um, about the first man and the first woman being made in God's image. But what I would like to look at this morning and just kind of focus on is that God gave that first man and that first woman dominion over everything that he had given them. Now, God exercises dominion over the earth, but he doesn't dominate anyone. 
And there's a world of difference between dominion and domination. Uh, dominion lovingly enables everything and everyone under its authority um, to, to function the way that it was created. Um, since the fall, we don't know a lot about dominion. We're, we're a lot better at domination. Okay? Um, so there's, there's uh, something in our language where we take two words that are commonly used and then we join those words together to make a new word. That's called a portmanteau when you do that. And so we use portmanteaus all the time. Um, back in the early 1900s, uh, cars began to be commonly used, and when they were commonly used, we needed roads, so we made more roads. And then they began to build these structures for all these people who were traveling around in their new cars on their new roads. And they called them motor hotels. Motels. See, that's, that is a portmanteau. It takes two words, motor and hotel, makes, makes one word out of it. Um, there are lots and lots of those. Velcro is velvet, which one side of Velcro is like a velvet, has little loops, and crochet, the other side has little hooks, and you put them together and they stick together. Velvet crochet, it's Velcro. Well, there's another um, word that is also um, a, a portmanteau. Look at Jesus. He exercised dominion over gravity. See, he exercised dominion over gravity and he walked on the water twice that we know of. Um, he exercised authority and dominion over the wind and the waves and he scared his disciples witless. See? Um, but he didn't dominate those guys. He didn't. He, um, he brought them under his dominion but he didn't dominate them. He patiently walked with them while, for years, three years, while they did and said some pretty dumb stuff. He loved them to wholeness. And they came to him and they said, so Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like you pray. What should we pray? And he said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, Your kingdom come. Kingdom is one of those portmanteaus. It's made up of two separate words. The king's dominion. Okay? And so they were to pray that the king's dominion would come to the earth the way that it was in heaven. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. He mentioned it over 120 times in the Gospels. It was a major theme of what he preached. He went preaching the kingdom of God, the king's dominion or the king's domain. See, and that then what did he do with us? He said, okay, you guys pray now. Pray that that, that dominion, that domain would come to the earth. Well, Coming back to the garden, rather than those two newly created people wandering around kind of aimlessly, God gave them work to do. They were commissioned to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over everything, including the fish and the birds. 
And I thought about that. Can you imagine them having dominion over fish and birds? See, they obviously had some superpowers that we have since lost if they're going to have kind dominion over fish and over birds. One of Adam's first projects from uh, Genesis 2.20 was to name all the animals. Now, that may have been as simple as, um, you know, the lion comes up and presents itself before Adam and he says, you are a lion. Or maybe a lion came up before Adam and he looked at it and he said, hmm, you're Horatio, your name is Horatio, and you, lioness, you're Penelope. Now, see, we can laugh at that, um, but wouldn't it have brought much joy for, for Adam to name every single animal in creation? Um, talking about God, the psalmist writes, he determines the number of the stars. He gives all of them their names. See, you are Algol. You are Rigel. You are Antares. See, all seven times 10 to the 64th power number of stars. He, he gave them all their names. So why wouldn't it be just a, 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 an occasion of great joy for Adam to name each and every animal? The most amazing verse of all, though, is, um, is Genesis 2.25. So in Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So this verse has less to do with nudity and more to do with transparency. See, uh, the newly made man and the newly made woman were transparent in their relationships with God and their relationships with one another. There was no hiding. There was no shame. There was no awkwardness about who they were, no self-consciousness. See, now this is where we really have to start using our imaginations because none of us have ever experienced that kind of transparency in our relationship with God or in our relationship with one another. See, even in our best moments, there's a thing in me that says, if you really knew me the way I am, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Thing. And, and I've got to protect myself because if I don't protect myself, nobody else is going to do it. See, um, there was none of that in the garden between the man, his wife, and God. That created a level of joy that we can only imagine. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he tells the believers that the kingdom of God, remember that? That's the king's domain, that's his king's dominion. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now that's what the first man and the first woman were experiencing fully in the garden. Righteousness. See, right relationship with God, transparency, and right relationship with one another. Peace. Now see, we think about peace normally as just the absence of conflict. So we pray for peace in Ukraine. What we're actually praying for is that they'll stop shooting each other, you know. But, but that's not what God's talking about when he talks about peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. And shalom is so much more than just the absence of conflict. 
Shalom is interwoven human flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. And then joy, that experience of great pleasure and delight, righteousness, peace, and joy. It's like that was, that was the standard of living in the garden. That was the standard of living in the garden. It was the air that they breathed. It was the water that they swam in. And that brings us to our verses from chapter 3 that we read earlier. After the fall, broken joy and deep longing. So our story now takes a really dark turn. Satan questions God's integrity to the man and his wife and suggests that God's intentions towards them are not kind, but they're twisted. And they listened to him, and they disobeyed the only negative commandment that God had given them, that they weren't to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bible talks a lot about the potter and the clay. So here's a metaphor for you. It was as if God, as the master potter, fashioned the earth and everything in it as a magnificent piece of pottery, a work more beautiful than anything we've ever seen. The vibrant colors on this piece, they would make the most beautiful Iowa sunset you've ever seen look flat and washed out. Light literally radiates from this thing that he created. See, um, it brings tears to your eyes even to look at it. If you touched it, it would impart a tingling sensation to you that reminded you of everything good you had ever experienced. The fragrance emanating from it, it made you want to love God and love people more deeply than you'd ever done before. The intricate detail on the outside of this thing, it was more than you could take in. If you got a magnifying glass and looked at it, you'd see more detail. If you got a microscope and looked at it, you'd see even more detail. So that's a picture of this creation that God had entrusted to the man and to his wife. The earth, the animals, their God-ordained mission, they literally held it in their hands. And then they willfully and intentionally dropped it. And it shattered into 10,000 pieces. See, it broke. Um, one of my favorite places in the world is the Grand Canyon. I just love that place. Um, the, the play of light and shadow in the Grand Canyon, uh, it's just an ever-changing panorama of, of beauty there. See, I can, I can stand there and I can watch it for hours. But as I do, I'm, all I'm seeing is a broken shard of what God had created when he made that place. See, it's like a reflection of a reflection of a reflection. Get too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon will kill you. Uh, 17 people died there last year. See? That was never God's kind intention for that place. The fall shattered nature just like it shattered us. Think of the most beautiful person that you've ever seen. See, that person is only a dim reflection 
of that first man and his wife. Give that beautiful person 60 years, all that beauty will be gone. Just a broken shard of the original glory. Get too close to a lion. See that beautiful creature that we were intended to exercise kind dominion over? That lion will kill you. It will. It's broken nature. So have you ever experienced, had the experience of, of thinking that if there was just this one thing, or if you could just go to this one place or have this one thing, then your life would be complete. You would feel fulfilled. See, it would be the fulfillment of everything that you've ever dreamed about. And then you got that one thing, or you were able to go to that place. And it was good, but it wasn't the fulfillment that you thought it was going to be. You've got that thing now, and it's, it's good to have it, but it's not the fulfillment of everything that you wanted. Um, so we experience satisfaction and dissatisfaction at the same time. See, the world is still a broken place. We're still broken people. And that sense of longing stays with us. We're longing for something that is actually outside of the world, outside of what we can experience. Well, the rest of Genesis 3 talks about judgment falling on the man and on his wife for their disobedience. Exiled from the garden, the first man and the first woman lost their transparency with God and their transparency with each other. The lie that the serpent had told them when he said, you shall surely not die, became obvious for the patent lie that it was, and they started dying. God had designed their bodies to live forever. So dying came hard for them. Adam lived for 930 years. 930 years. 930 years of regret, of pain, and of separation from his God and from his wife. See, we can only imagine what complete relational transparency with God would be like. Um, Adam knew, see, he remembered. And I'm sure that the memory of that um, was now crushingly bitter. Before the fall, work in the garden had been all joy. Now it was hard. There was sweat. It was three steps forward and sliding back two steps. In a jealous rage, their oldest son killed his younger brother. See, broken nature and broken people were everywhere. Pastor Calvin Miller wrote a little book titled The Singer, which is a retelling of the gospel story. Now, in the book, Jesus is described as the singer, and the gospel is his song. So this is Miller's poetic description of humanity after the fall. The new man aged and died and dying grew a race of doubtful, death-owned, sickly men. And every child received the planet's scar and wept for love to come and reign. And then to heal hate-sickened life, both wide and far. We're naked, cried the new men <clears throat> in their shame. They really were. 
a race of piteous things who had no name. They died absurdly whimpering for life. They probed their sin for rationality, self-murdered self in endless hopeless strife, and holiness slept with indecency. All birth was but the prelude unto death, and every cradle swung above a grave. The sun made weary trips from east to west. Time found no shore, and culture screamed and raved. The world, in peaceless orbits, sped along and waited for the singer and for his song. If we go back to chapter 3, the man and his wife had disobeyed, and judgment fell on them. So what happens next? God banishes them from the garden, right? No, that's not what happens next. While they were still in the garden, standing there, fallen, broken, naked, and ashamed, in verse 21, it tells us that God clothed them in animal skins. See, he clothed them. That one simple act speaks volumes to us about the Father's love for us and his desire for relationship with us. His covering their shame was that very long ray of hope and of light that shows us Jesus on the cross. Okay, It looks at Jesus on the cross. Jesus would cover our shame at great expense to himself. God so desires relationship with us that Jesus laid aside his glory, his role as the architect of everything, and he became a man, a poor man, a man who was despised and fully acquainted with grief and with suffering, one who would endure mocking, beating, Roman crucifixion, and death. The best news of all times is that death wasn't strong enough to hold him. So three days later, he rose from the grave. But this time, it wasn't to clothe us with animal skins. It was to clothe us with the righteousness that he had just purchased for us and that he had had since before the beginning. Well, that brings us uh, to the third and final movement today, the restoration of all things, the fullness of joy. On June the 6th, 1944, all along the French coast, the Allied forces began their invasion of Europe. 350,000 soldiers and sailors, 7,000 ships, and 2,400 aircraft were deployed in Operation Overlord, which we now know as the D-Day invasion. It was the largest air and naval amphibious assault that the world has ever seen. So time was of the essence. Uh, tens of millions of people lay behind enemy lines in Europe, suffering under the Axis powers. Thousands more were being executed every day in the concentration camps scattered all over the continent. But as high as the stakes were in June of 1944, and as many men and as much equipment as, as was deployed there, the D-Day invasion pales in comparison with what had already happened 2,000 years earlier in a stable in Bethlehem. 
God had launched his own D-Day invasion, one that would liberate not only humanity, but all of nature too. Um, Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, his, his invasion began with his own son, fully God, and yet also fully man, being born a baby to a poor peasant girl. The only witnesses that night um, were not kings. They weren't um, religious leaders. In fact, they weren't anybody important as the world counts important people. They were shepherds, the lowliest of the low. Listen to Luke's account of that night. Now shepherds were in that region and were keeping watch over their flocks. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone upon them and they feared greatly. And the angel said, do not fear for behold, I declare good news to you, a great joy which shall be for all the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now listen to this one. And from the quiet calm, suddenly the great armies of heaven appeared with the angel, and while shouting praises to God, they were saying, Glory to God in heaven and upon the earth, peace, good news to the children of men. See, this is the first time we've seen these shepherds. But it's not the first time we've seen these angels. These angels were the same angelic warriors who were there when all the stars were singing as creation happened. See, the angelic warriors had shouted for joy in the beginning, and now they're doing it again as the invasion gets underway. So God's invasion of our brokenness had begun, and it would culminate 33 years later with Jesus dying on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. His resurrection three days later, and then his ascension to the Father, sealed the victory. It sealed the victory. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are enough to buy the redemption for every man, woman, and child that have ever been born. Peter wrote that God is not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. And Ezekiel 33 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. So we find ourselves today in this in-between place, see? Um, knowing the ultimate outcome is settled. See, it was settled when Jesus walked out of the tomb. But we're not yet seeing the fulfillment of everything that's been promised. We experience longing for everything to be, to be restored. But did you know that creation also longs? And what it longs for might surprise you. Romans 8, Paul writes, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So all of creation is longing for us. 
See, for us to step up and be used by God for his purposes in the here and the now to bring the restoration to creation that was all shattered in the fall. Part of our problem today is that we don't have much of an idea of what eternity with the Lord looks like. We've been sold a caricature um, of eternity as, you know, fat winged babies with um, golden harps on pink clouds. And I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sound that good to me. Uh, I'm, that's, that's not what I'm interested here. So rather than allowing ourselves to be spurred on with longing to live like the people and the exiles in this place that we are, we've often settled comfortably into our comfortable, miserable lives here on earth. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Thessalonica spent a whole chapter talking about um, eternity and the hope that we have for eternity. Then he ends the chapter saying this, encourage one another with these words. See? We need to be encouraging one another, not only to live with integrity in this life, but also encouraging one another about what lays before us as everything gets restored. The Garden of Eden was not a precious moments caricature, and the restoration of all things won't be a caricature either. So we've been looking at Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, but we long for these verses in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, also to become not only our hope, but also our joyful experience. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. That's us, by the way. The dwelling place of God is with man. He is our God, and we are his people. He will wipe away every tear. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. C.S. Lewis, in the last paragraph of the last chapter of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, seven books in all, um, he finishes that series in a way that should encourage all of us who long for the Lord's coming and the healing of all things. In the story, the characters that, that we've come to know and love um, have, have uh, persevered and have just experienced their last battle. Okay? That it was finished. They faithfully fought that last battle. And Lewis concludes the book saying this, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, <clears throat> it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what lays before us. That's what lays before us. So where do we find ourselves um, in our story today? See, um, none of us in this room have fought our last battle yet. See, that's still before us. 
if we see it realistically, we're really in the middle of a mop-up operation after a war that was already won on the cross. We're here on his mission, struggling against principalities and powers and against lofty things that are lifted up against the knowledge of God. Sometimes we get wounded. Sometimes we take casualties. We long for the day when the enemies that are at work in us and are at work against the people of God are for once and forever fully vanquished. Until then, as Jude wrote in verse 21, we strive to keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. See, that's where our hope is this morning. That's where our hope is. That's where our strong confidence is today. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I thank you that you first loved us. Lord, when we move towards you, Lord, it's in response to you first having moved towards us. Lord, I, I pray for each of us here today. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, draw us in your love. Help us, Lord, to abide in you. Father, please heal our broken hearts. Even with all our, our unanswered questions, Lord, help us to put our hand in your hand. Help us to leave behind all the ifs, the buts, and the whys and present ourselves to you as our good, good Father. Thank you, Father. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.